I want to introduce you to Ben. Ben is in his mid-twenties. He's a pretty good-looking guy. He seems to have it all going on. You know, he, uh, he dresses well. He's likable. All of his friends think that he's really approachable, find him to be a, you know, a, a pretty good guy. Um, he's a hard worker, too. Ben, uh, he knows how to get his hands dirty, and so he works hard. Um, he's diligent. Um, he's also very self-disciplined. And that, in fact, he did really well at sports in high school. Uh, and people looked at him, um, and, and they saw him as, as a leader, as someone to look up to. Um, ben also goes to church. Um, Ben's gone to church since the time he can remember. He was actually born to a whole line of churchgoers, a whole line of family that, that, that you know, have gone to church, and that's what they've always done, is they've gone to church. And so Ben likes church, actually. He talks about it, and, uh, and he enjoys talking about church. Um, ben, for college, he went to a, uh, a religiously affiliated college, and he enjoyed it. He enjoyed kind of getting time away and out of the world um, and, uh, and kind of being separated from the sinfulness and the, and the pollution of the world. And so, uh, and so he, he enjoyed it. Ben's pretty good with the girls, too. You know, he's the kind of, uh, he's the kind of guy that you would want your daughter to marry. And, uh, and in fact, you know, he, he strives for purity even, you know, with girls. He tries to, to treat them well and to honor them, um, to, uh, you know, to treat them as they deserve. Um, the only problem, you know, like Ben has everything going on, it seems like, right? It seems that, that Ben is a complete package, that Ben is, is a solid Christian. The only problem is that he's not a Christian. From all the external facets, you would think that Ben is, is the ideal Christian, in fact. It seems as if he has it all going on. And, and in fact, if you actually told Ben that he wasn't a Christian, he might argue with you. He might come back and, and say, well, of course I'm a Christian. He would be offended at the thought that he wasn't. But you see, Ben's not a Christian because he's falsely thought that Christianity was something that you do. He, he thought that because he was born in a certain place to a certain set of people, that because you behave in a certain line of morality, that you live up to the standards, that those things are what make you a Christian. You see, Ben's probably the most dangerous non-Christian there is. He's probably the most dangerous unbeliever because he actually thinks that he is one. He's deceived because he thinks that it's by living up to a standard that you're saved. You see, there are Ben's in probably every church, maybe even here. People that because their parents have gone to church, people that because they think that they've done good things, um, people that because they're in a culture think that they're a Christian. And this is probably the most deceptive and damnable lie that there ever is because it so closely mimics the truth. And so this is what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about empty religion. A life that maybe seems full of active um, duties and, and callings, but, but is devoid of the gospel of grace. So if you have your, your Bibles, we're going to turn to Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2. Um, if you're new here, we've been going through the book of Romans. And so we're in the middle of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Um, it's really important to remember that in verse 11, what... Colin ended with last week, it says that God shows no partiality. Okay, that's going to be really important for our message. So let's, let's pick up in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law 
will also perish without the law. And all who has sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So our big idea, if I want you to take away one thing from today, right? The big idea is that true Christianity, true transformation comes from the inside out, not the outside in, right? That true biblical Christianity, true transformation in your life is going to come not from the outside in, but from the inside out, we live out our identity. We live out what is the inmost and most important part of who we are. So if you're here and perhaps you're not a Christian one, I'm, I'm thankful that you're here. I want you to know that you're loved, that you have a safe place to, to come and to be. Um, and, and in our time together, what I hope that you get, if you're not a Christian, I hope that you get that Christianity isn't about your behavior. It's not about you behaving in line with a certain standard, about you living up to a certain um, part of expectation. That what God is primarily concerned with is not where you've been or what you've done. But what God is primarily concerned about is your posture, your heart's posture towards him. How is your heart postured towards him? Are you open or is your heart hard, settled, pushing back against him? For those of us who are Christians, what I hope that as we process through these verses, I hope what we get is that we have a sense of urgency, that we have a sense of, of conviction, that the things that we do day in and day out, that we don't grow complacent in them, but instead that there's fresh conviction about what we do and why, why we do it, about why we do it, that Grace is what justifies us, not our own, not our own effort. So 
Let's dive into the passes. The passes breaks down pretty neat, pretty nice and neat into three different categories. Uh, 12 through 16, if you look there, it's uh, it's all about being judged fairly or being judged impartially. Uh, verses 17 through 24 is about practicing what you preach, right? That we need to practice what we preach. And verses 25 through 29 talks about the true Jew, right? The true Jew. It talks about the heart of what is biblical, true Christianity. All right, so verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> judged fairly and impartially. Um, in verse 11, Paul says, right, for God shows no, God is not partial. God is no impartiality. He is just. What this means is that there, nobody has the inroad to God, right? Nobody has the fast track to God. God, unlike our court systems or any court system in the world, isn't biased. God has no bias in him. There are no hung juries. There are no mistrials with God. God is completely just, and he is completely fair. He's completely fair, right? It starts off in verse 12, and it says, for all who have sinned. I know it might seem a simple point, but it, the, the basic confession of us as Christians is that we have sinned, right? That is the starting point of all Christian doctrine, is that we have fallen short of God's standards. Um, it says in a and later on in Romans, in Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John in his epistle, First uh, John one eight, he says, "If we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us." Later on in verse ten, he goes on, he says, "If we say we have not sinned, we make him, we make God a liar, and His word is not in us." So the starting point is that we have sinned, right? There's a law that we have transgressed, that we have broken, but this implies that there must be a law that we know to break it. Right? I mean, how is it that people are judged if they don't have a law upon which they knew that they were going to break? Right? You, you can only violate something unless you have it to violate. And so, how is it, and Paul is going on here, how is it that people can be judged if they don't have a law? Right? I mean, because the Jews, they knew the Ten Commandments, right? They had the law, they've been given the law, and so they're going to be judged according to the law. And the same thing for a lot of Christian cultures, that they know the Bible, right? I mean, you know you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I mean, most of us could probably list off at least a handful of the Ten Commandments. And thereby, knowing the Ten Commandments, we are going to be judged according to what we knew. But how is it that people are judged when they didn't know that? How is it that people are judged when they didn't have the law, when they didn't have those standards? How does that work? Paul goes on and says, listen, those that don't have the law, they're going to perish, so he says, listen, just because they don't have the external written law, they're going to perish. That word perish, it means eternal separation. They're going to be eternally separated. They're going to be destroyed. It means their destruction is imminent. And so just because someone doesn't have the law, because they don't have external, the external law given to them, it doesn't mean that they aren't going to be separated from God. It doesn't mean that they're, going, they're not going to perish. And so what this means is that there's no one who's the innocent savage. There's no one who, because they haven't heard, is, is going to enter into heaven. All people are judged. All sin separates from God. So how is that fair? Right? I mean, at least that, that should be the tension that we're feeling right now, is that, well, Trevor, I don't know exactly how is that fair. Because I understand how we're judged because we knew, but how are they judged because they didn't know it. They didn't have that standard. And that's what Paul turns to. Paul turns to, to answer that question because he's answering and he's showing that God is fair and always, and he defends God's justice. He defends God's fairness in three different arguments. 
Okay, the first way that he defends God's justice, that he defends his fairness, his impartiality, is he says that all people actually do have God's law. All people do have God's law, right? We've already talked that there's one group of people that have God's law that know the Ten Commandments, but he also says there's a, another group, right? He says that they've sinned under the law to be judged by the law, and he goes, for it is, uh, and for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, everyone has the law. Some people have it externally and written, but others have its work written upon their hearts. Why do you, why do you believe in God? We've already seen when we look back at Romans 1 that part of the reason that we are without excuse for believing in God is because of creation. When you look out at the sky, when you look at the mountains, when you look at the ocean, when you look at all of these things that are created, it speaks, it cries out of God's existence that it has a creator. But it's not just that. Not only do we see creation from without and we realize that there's a creator, but God has placed his moral law within that we might know that he is real, that we might know that he exists. The fact that we have moral values, that we have judgments, declare that God is real, that he is the giver of the moral law. He is the giver of our morality, of what makes us think that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Right? And he says that. He says, listen, their conscience bears witness I don't know about you, I knew that there was a moral law when I was pretty young because I would get convicted about things. Um, I remember one of my first, the first instance I lied that I can remember, I'm sure I lied before it, but the first instance that I can remember, I was probably about the, the age of five and we were in a school choir and you know that was probably the last time I ever sung um, for that is definitely not my gifting. But uh, we were singing and the whole choir's up there and I'm I'm just bored out of my mind, you know, like we're singing along and I'm kind of looking around, looking for something. And all of a sudden, like I see some rocks down there. And so I decided to take a handful of rocks and I start just tossing, tossing at things, at people, at all kinds of whatever, you know, whatever suited my fancy, which ensues a ruckus in the middle of the choir, as you can imagine, you know, like kids like turning their heads, like parents going, what's going on? And, uh, and I thought I was pretty discreet. Now, you know, I thought I have like, you know, a little good underhand. And so I thought I was getting away with it. Unbeknownst to myself, my parents had filmed this occasion. And so, uh, and so I, they came and said, so Trevor, what were you doing during the choir? And of course, I was singing, mom. I was singing, dad. And, uh, and I, I lied. And I knew I was, I knew it was wrong. You know, I felt it in my little conscience. I knew that what I was doing, I was telling a lie and that it was wrong. But I did it anyways. But anyways, because I didn't want to get spanked. I didn't want to get in trouble. And so, you know, sure enough, my parents said, well, you know, we kind of looked at the footage and we know that you lied and we know that you were throwing rocks, you know, and so I got spanked. Um, so, it, you know, better to tell the truth. Um, but the fact that all of us have these instances, right? All of us, all the time, we have these instances where our conscience cries out that what you're doing is wrong or what you're doing is right. And that's what Paul says here. He says, see, that they show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so what Paul is imagining here is that our heart is like a book. And, and imagine our heart like a book. It's laid open, and the work of the law is written upon it. It's written upon our heart. We know, we know what is right and wrong. And he says, listen, our conscience is the reader of that law. 
right? So you have a book. Our conscience is the one who's reading that and who's testifying about what it says. So when you get convicted of that, that's your conscience telling you what is written upon your heart. And our conscience is speaking up and it's telling us, disclosing the moral law that God has put within. And then our mind comes in and our mind is like the debater, right? Our mind comes in and it starts arguing about what our conscience said. And our mind says, well, you know, like you were right. You should have lied because you see what would have happened. Or it says you're wrong because, you know, look what happened. You got spanked anyways, you know? And so your mind comes in and it debates and it argues back and forth about what your conscience is speaking and telling. And so what this shows is that we all know, we all have this all the time. And so it, it shows, it gives evidence that God has placed his law within our heart, that we do know that he is real. Because we know that there are things that are, are really right and are really wrong. Because if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe that there is a God, you're forced to say that our moral values are nothing more than opinions, more like taste and ice cream rather than anything objective. And you have no basis to ever make any moral judgment ever again. You lose that value. So people might intellectually say, oh, well, there are no such things as objective morals. But I promise you, they don't live that way. It causes a disconnect between the way that you think and the way that you live. If you say that there's no morality, then you, I promise, you won't operate in a family and you sure as heck can't operate a society that way because you must believe that there are things worth punishing, that there are such things as justice. Things are actually wrong in and of themselves. And so we see God's fairness is because all of us have a law. All of us have something, whether externally and written, given to us, or internally written upon our heart. We all have the law. The second thing that Paul does to defend God's justice, to defend his fairness, is he says that we are going to be judged according to the standard that we have. Right? We are going to be judged according to the standard that we have. And so those of us that have the law, that understand it, the law is going to be our standard that we are judged upon. But what about those who didn't have the law? What about those who, who didn't know? What Paul is saying here is he's saying they're going to be measured according to their own standards. The own standards that they expected of others is what they're going to be expected of. Jesus says it like this. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Francis Schaeffer, he imagined it like this, that From the time of our birth, we have an invisible tape recorder hanging around our necks. We don't know that it's there, but every time we speak and we tell someone that you ought to do this, you ought to take out the garbage, you ought not to be selfish, you ought not to lie, you ought not to steal, you ought to be generous. Every time you say you ought, it records it throughout your entire life. And so what happens when you die is that God sits back and he says, let's take a look at that. He takes it off your neck and he shows you and he pushes play and he lets you watch out your own standards, your own expectations of what you thought other people should live in life in light of. And he shows that you don't measure up. So you're condemned not by a standard that you didn't know, but you're condemned by your own standard, your own standard. You will be the prosecution in the case against you. You will testify against yourself. And so God is fair and that he allows each of us the standard. If we haven't known the law, if we haven't heard of Christianity, then he goes, okay, we'll take your standard. And he plays it. If we have, then it's our own standard. Not only this, but he goes on in the, in the third one. He says that 
God is fair because all of us, all of us are on equal terms with God. None of us, none of us have an inroad. None of us are favorites before God. Why? Because all of us as individuals are going to have our secrets disclosed before God. He says this in verse 16. He says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It may seem simple, but you have no secrets from God. There is no closet that God doesn't have the key to. There's no secrets that you can hide from him. He knows everything that you have ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything that you are currently practicing, and even the things that you will do in the future. God knows all of it. And every single one of us is going to be standing before him individually and giving an account to him. No one can say, well, my family told me, or this person said, or, but did you see how I was treated? All of us individually will give an account before our creator. And mind, I remember how judges judge. Judges don't judge according to a sliding scale of good or bad. Right? When you go to court, when you go in trial, they don't say, well, listen, you've done a lot of good things this last week, so I guess we'll excuse the fact that you, you know, that you stole or that you killed someone. That's not the way that it works. That's not the way that justice works. Justice works whether you violated the law or not. And so all of us will stand before God guilty because we have violated his law and the deepest, darkest secrets of our heart will be laid bare before him. Now, as Christians, this should make us throw ourselves at the mercy of God. This should make us come before him and, and as a woman caught in adultery, come before his feet and cry for mercy because we know that he gives it. That if you're not a Christian and your heart is hard towards this, you have two options. Either you will stand before God in your own power and your own strength, or you can choose to stand before God in the power and strength of another. One that can obey, one that can stand in God's presence rather than melt. So, Jesus clarifies this by saying in, in Luke 12, 2-3, he says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be, shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And so we know that there's no secrets with God. Everything is laid bare before him. So we see God is fair, right? Summary of this of 12 through 16. God is fair. Why? Because all of us have a law. Externally, internally, all of us have a standard. All of us will be judged according to the standard that we knew, whether it's the law or whether it's our own standards. And also, all of us are going to stand before God as individuals with all of our deepest, darkest, deepest, darkest secrets laid bare before him and given account. So God is fair in his judgment and his justice. And let me just say this. If you don't believe that God judges, then what does God save you from? How do you, how do you know God's love? If you don't think that there is a God that has wrath that judges, then what has he done to demonstrate his love for you? Because as Christians, we believe that God's love is most demonstrated in saving us from judgment rather than blanketly accepting every wrong and evil and immoral act that we do. God is a God of justice and of judgment and reveals that through his Son. So we go on now to our next passage in 17 through 24, which is practicing what you preach. Practicing what you preach. Now, there's six things. When you look at this passage, the Jews were self-confident. They relied upon six different things, and we'll run through them real quick. The first one is that they called themselves a Jew. They were proud of their nationality, of their ethnicity, that they were Jews. And even still to this day, 
You, you meet those that are, are Jews of blood. And often there's a great pride in the fact that I am a Jew. And, and, the, and the, the line that came from there. So there's a pride in their nationality. They relied on the law. So there's a pride in having and knowing the law. They bragged about their relationship with God. That God had chosen Israel to be his people. The fourth one is that they knew his will and they approved of what is superior. You see, the Jews had the ability to make correct ethical choices. They could look at something and they could say, okay, yeah, I look at a decision and this is right or this is wrong. They had that kind of moral compass to make those kinds of decisions. The next one is that they were instructed by the law. They had mastered the law. They could quote it. Um, they knew it backwards and forwards. And so they weren't strange to the law. They knew it well. And then the last one um, that he records here is that they were convinced that they are a guide to the blind, that they knew they were saved and that others, that others were lost. Now, when you read through this passage, those are good things, right? I mean, like, you look at that and, like, I mean, Paul says it. Paul says, listen, I boast in God and you should boast in God. It's a pretty good thing that you would know how to make a good choice, right? That you would have wisdom and that you would look at something and say, you know, that seems like it's going to lead to my destruction. I probably shouldn't do that. That's a good thing. You know, is it wrong um, to know the Bible, right? Is it wrong to know the ins and outs of the Bible to understand what it says? No. All of these things are actually really good things. The problem is, is that their attitude towards those things. And you see what there's a, a world of dif- difference between morality, good things, and turning that, those good things into God, moralism. Because what happened with the Jews is that they made these good things into a system of salvation. I do these good things or I'm born from Abraham, therefore I'm special, therefore I am God's favorite. Do you see that moralism is the biggest religion that exists in the world today? And what moralism is based on is that God has favorites. Right, the, the heartbeat of moralism is that God has favorites, namely me. Right, we all we all say that when we fall into moralism, we say that God has favorites and I'm His favorite. I'm His favorite. Why? Because I work hard, because I'm pretty disciplined, because I keep His rules. That's why God loves me because I'm a really good person. And this is the heartbeat of moralism, and it separates us. It 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 destroys us. It kills us. Now. I want to go through what are some signs that you're slipping into moralism, right? Because this is exactly like you want to know Jesus' opponents, the people that Jesus came most adamantly against were those that were in the, what we would say are in the church, the religious Jews. They thought that they knew and they had it going on and Jesus came sharply in distinction from them. And so we all need to be aware that our hearts will drift there. Our hearts will drift to moralism. And so how do you know that your heart is drifting there? What are some signs? First, that you have a theoretical only stance toward God's word. That when you hear God's word preached or proclaimed, that you instantly start thinking of other people. You know, it would be really good if so-and-so were here because, man, they really need to hear this. Or when you're reading God's word, it becomes about information that you attain. Right? And this is, this is what happens a lot is that we come to church or we read the Bible and we kind of get bored with it because we think, well, there's no new information for me. I've kind of learned this information before. And so therefore, like, why do I need to go? Because I'm hearing kind of the same thing. And so we think that Christianity is about amassing a bunch of information about God and about the scriptures and about theology. 
what happens is the moralist is really interested in truth. They're really active in pursuing truth, but truth never masters them. They're never submitted to it. The moralist has a distant relationship with the scriptures. He's able to objectify them. But you see the true Christian, when they come in, they're constantly being either encouraged or convicted, either lifted up or, or put down by the scriptures. The, the scriptures are all the time convicting them because they realize that I am the worst sinner. And so the scriptures speak directly to them. Do you find that in your heart? Do you find that you tend to lean towards just gathering information? If there's not new information, then I'm not as interested. Or do you lean more towards I'm desiring to have fellowship with God? I want a relationship with him. The second sign that uh, that our hearts are slipping into, into moralism is that there's a moral superiority. There's a built-in bragging. You see, when, when your way of salvation is that you're living in a certain way, that you're doing good things, then you're going to naturally be, pro- be, be proud of your efforts. You're going to be full of pride because of what a good person you are. And so when you, you can tell that your heart is going to moralism, when you walk away and you think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. Look at what I did. I gave. I served. You know, I deserve a pat on the back. I deserve a job well done because, man, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. And so we, we have this, this prize built in. And so what happens is you begin to condemn those who are weaker than you. Those that you think have fallen short of the standards that you're doing so well in, you're at, at best, you're cold to them. And at worst, you're condemning. Is that you look at those people that are struggling and instead of having compassion and having sympathy upon them and coming to them in their weakness, knowing that you are weak likewise, you go and you gossip about them and you talk about how weak they are or you talk about what they're struggling with. You talk about this. Not only do you do this, but people don't find you to be a safe place. When you're a moralist, people don't really want to come to you. They don't want to come and talk to you about their problems because they're scared, right? Because they know that you're going to use it to make yourself feel better. That you're going to use their problems to feel better about yourself because you think that you've got it going on. And so you'll find that people don't find that you're a safe place when when your heart goes into moralism. That people will run away from you. So... Let's talk about problems. So we've talked about like how some signs that we know that we're struggling with moralism. Now let's talk about what are the problems with moralism. The first thing is that when you look at, he talks about practicing what you preach. You who preach to others, do you not teach yourself? And so one of the biggest problems with moralism is that it's inconsistent, right? The, the moralist who seeks to live up to these standards, who says, listen, I'm saved by what I do rather than submitting to what Christ has done, that person is inconsistent, And he says it here, the Jews, they were boasting, they were bragging about the law, but they were inconsistent because they would say, listen, don't don't steal, but then they would go steal. They would say, don't commit adultery, but they would commit adultery. Now, the third one says, don't rob temples. Most likely what's going on here is that you probably didn't have Jews going and robbing temples. Like throughout the Old Testament, you see God's pretty emphatic about them not worshiping another God because they just get blown up. Like they just, it doesn't go well for the Jews when they start worshiping other gods. And so what most likely happened here is that he's talking about their inward heart attitude. Paul is doing something similar to what Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount. Is he goes and says, listen, it's not just that you're inconsistent in your actions. Because here's the thing, all of us, All of us are inconsistent in our actions. There's going to be times where you're outrightly a hypocrite. 
where there are times where you just fall short, where you know what you ought to do and you fail to do it. And if if your standard, if your righteousness, if your sense of meaning is upon your obedience and your goodness, that's going to crush you. It's going to destroy you, right? And not only that, but you have to keep up this veneer. You have to keep up this this good this good face. You have to keep wearing the mask because what would happen if other people found out that you were inconsistent, that you were a hypocrite? And so you're, it provides that. But not only this, but all of us in our hearts are inconsistent. All of us in our hearts know how we ought to treat people and know how we ought to love them, and we fail to do it. And so you see the problem with moralism is it's inconsistent. None of us can do it. None of us can be consistent in living up to the standards that God has placed. The second problem is that it stinks. Listen, moralism stinks. It's unattractive. And he says this. He says that for as is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's talking to the Jews. God saved Israel to be a light to all the nations. God didn't save them just that they would be in a holy huddle. God saved them that they might proclaim his excellence, his glory, his goodness. But they didn't. What happened was is they got proud. They got stuck on the fact that they were Jews. They had been given the law. And what happens is it's extremely unattractive. So Keller says the moralist is smug. And here's why it's unattractive. Keller says that the moralist is smug for their good people. They're oversensitive because they depend on their goodness. They're judgmental. They need to be better than others and anxious because they're never sure if they've done enough. Do you see? He says that they're right, that they're they're smug because they think that I'm really good. And so that smugness, pride sends people away. I don't know if you've encountered people in your life that are just are stuck and are just full of pride. It is the most unattractive thing. The problem is that pride is really deceptive because we can see pride in other people, but often it's hard for us to see it in ourselves. The most of the time we point out other people, but we're blind to pride in our own lives. And he says it makes us smug. It makes us confident, but not in a good way. And he says that it makes them oversensitive, that if you're a moralist, you can't, you can't be confronted in your sin. It destroys you because if someone comes to you, your reputation and your image is what really matters to you. And so if that's destroyed, then you lash out. And so are you able, are people able to come to you in your sin? Are people able to confront you? Are people able to lovingly rebuke you? Do you have those relationships in your life where people do that? Do you welcome it? Because if you're a moralist, you're going to flee from that. You're going to run from that. You're going to hate that because it's going to destroy your sense of goodness, your sense of value. He says that they're judgmental, right? And this is what a lot of the world thinks of Christianity, is that they're judgmental because their goodness stems from them having to find somebody that they're better than. And you see this with a lot of times religious people. This is what it was with the Pharisees, is that they had to see that they were, they were better than somebody else, and that's what validated that they were good or that they were righteous. And so they're constantly judgmental. Do you find that there's a judgmental spirit? That when you're around non-Christians, you're around somebody that's weaker, that you begin to feel better about yourself? You begin to think that you have it together? And then he says that they're anxious. The moralist is always anxious because they don't know if they've done enough. And you'll see, this is, this is why it's so deceptive, because often moralists are the hardest workers in the church. Right? They, they come in and they are full-fledged because they're committed. Why? Because they're 
anxious because they don't know if they've ever done enough to please God. Because they're constantly trying to please people or to have their, their identity affirmed by what other people think of them. And so it makes them riddled with anxiousness. And that's not very attractive. That's not very attractive. So, on the other side, what true Christianity says, true Christianity is marked by humility. Why? For we are the worst sinners that we know. We are humbled because no one knows our heart deeper than we do. And we know that we are the worst sinners. So true Christianity is marked by humility. It's marked by confidence. For God's love and goodness is our security and not our own. True Christianity is marked because, listen, even when I sin, even when you sin, even when you let down the standards, your confidence isn't in your moral ability. It's not in your perfection or your goodness. It's in his. And so you have confidence even in your weakness. Even in your sinfulness, you have confidence because it's about God and not about you. We need to become more God-centered and less man-centered. True Christianity is marked by acceptance, right? For if God could love us, then who can't we love? If God can love you, who do you think you can't love? The reason we don't accept others is because we don't understand how sinful we are. We don't understand the depths of our own heart, and therefore we're able to justify that I'm better than this person, therefore God should accept me. You see, you act out your relationship with the Lord. If you're not accepting others, it's because you don't really understand what God has done in accepting you. And the last one is that true Christianity is marked by peace. For Christ has done it all. And I'm able to have peace. Do you have a peace because you know that God has done everything on your behalf and that you can rest in him? You can rest in his goodness and in his ability? What's your life marked by? So he turns in our, in our last section, in verses 25 through 29. He talks about the true Jew, right? So we've kind of talked about some markers of what true Christianity is. And he, he goes on and he talks about for circumcision, right? Circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your, uncircum, or your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Why in the world does Paul all of a sudden jump into circumcision? Right? It seems like kind of an odd thing. Paul jumps into circumcision because that was what the Jews boasted in. Now, if in the Old Testament, in Genesis, God calls Abram. He calls one man. He says, through you, Abram, through you, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation for myself. And I'm going to begin to redeem the world through you. And the way that Abram was to know that God was his God and that they were in covenant was that God told him, you'll be circumcised. You will be marked, right? And Keller says, circumcision, don't think about this too long, is a cutting off in a very intimate, personal tender way so what god was saying to abraham was if you want to be in relationship with me you need to be circumcised as a sign to you and everyone that if you break covenant you will be cut off completely cut off from others cut off from life cut off from me you really will be circumcised circumcision was an an external sign of an internal reality you see, what, how covenants operate in the Old Testament is that you would act out the curse of the covenant, right? That's where you see animals being torn in two. You see people, you know, dumping dust upon someone's head. Is that you acted out the curse that if you broke the covenant, that you would be split in two. That if you broke the covenant, you would be buried in sand, right? And what he's saying here is that they are acting out the covenant that God is saying to, to Abraham, if you don't obey this covenant, you're going to be cut off from me. You're going to be cut off from life. You're going to be cut off from your people. And so that's what circumcision was. But as we've all seen, we, we don't, and neither did Abraham, 
fulfill the standards of the covenant. He fell short. And that's why Jesus came. Right? Jesus came in order that we might be brought near. Christ was circumcised on our behalf. He who lived the perfect life came and he was cut off out of the land of living. He was thrown aside. He was pushed out of his people that we, through faith, might come and might have life, might be brought near, might be made his people. Do you see Jesus? Do you see what he has done, that he has faced the consequences? He has taken the curse of the covenant upon himself, that we might have the blessings of the covenant for us? We're changed, right? The, the results, he says, the Spirit applies this to our hearts, that a true Jew, God's true people, are marked inwardly. Our hearts melt by seeing Jesus. And so I want to finish, I want to wrap up by, uh, by telling a parable that Jesus talks about, by how, how it should affect us, how realizing what Jesus has done, understanding and believing the gospel, how it should affect our, our attitude. Jesus tells a parable in, uh, in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, and he's talking to the Pharisees. It says, and he, he told this to people that trusted in themselves. He says that there was a tax collector and there was a Pharisee, and both went up into the temple to pray. The tax collector came near, and he said, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm not like other men, that I fast twice a week, that I give a tithe of all I have, that I'm disciplined and hardworking, that I do all of these things. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector even. He's stuck in his pride, but the tax, the tax collector, not even able to come up to the temple, falls at his knees, and he, and he says, God, baby, forgive me, a sinner. Forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus says that the tax collector walked away justified rather than the other. For he says that he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. You want to know the antidote to moralism? The antidote to moralism is humble submission to God. Is coming to him and and remembering that you are saved by grace. For you can't you can't go and rely upon your standards. And, and fall into moralism when you realize his grace. That your justification is by, by faith through grace only. And it's when we fail to realize that that we will begin to, to fall into moralism. So, as we close, I want to challenge you. Perhaps you've gone to the church your whole life. Maybe you've grown up going to church. Maybe you have heard, you know, you've heard the gospel a couple times. But you still in your heart you know that you're not really trusting God. You don't really trust Him for your salvation. You think that because you've come to church, you think that because you've read your Bible, you think that because you've done these things, that that's what guarantees that you're saved. I encourage you as we come and as we worship this last song to give yourself to Christ, to throw yourself at His feet, realizing that your standards and His will crush you and that you will not stand before Him. But only through faith in Jesus will you be able to stand in His sight. And that if you do that, if you give yourself to him, he is faithful to save. God will save all those who call upon his name, all those who trust themselves to him. Have you done that? Have you trusted in him? Or have you trusted in family? Have you trusted in culture? Have you trusted in duties and things to do?
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us. Protect us from ourselves. Protect us um, from the snare of moralism that we would think that we, by our goodness, can earn salvation. I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that we would see our own sinfulness, our own heart, and that you would you would apply grace to it. That we would, in turn, show grace to others. Help our lives to be attractive to those that are hungry and thirsty, to take off the mask, to lay down the, the, the empty facade, and that want to come to a place where people are real and people are open and honest about their own sin because they're not... They're not defined by their actions. They're defined by Christ. Help us to be that people. Help us to be a people that are defined by God, by your actions and your love, not by our inability and our sinfulness. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name that we pray, Christ. Amen.